Hey, it's Alana, and here's another episode of Black and Yellow coming in hot. What's up, Black and Yellow Nation? It's your girl, Alana, and I am thrilled to be back in your ears once again. If you are a new listener, welcome. Digital hug, I'm thrilled to have you joining me today. And if you are a return listener, Welcome back. I'm thrilled to bring you today's conversation. I'm going to try and not nerd out, but I have black feminist linguist icon in the house today. I still can't believe it. I'm still kind of pinching myself, um, but I'm very thrilled for today's conversation and I hope that you guys enjoy it. So pretty often in my work as a black feminist podcaster, there's a a language that begins to get cultivated over time. Certain words, certain phrases become commonly used to add nuance, inclusivity, and community while having honest conversations about otherwise difficult topics like race, gender, sexual orientation, age, class, and privilege. Some words and some phrases you can't imagine having these nuanced conversations without them. It's hard to imagine a conversation about feminism, race, sexual orientation, and class without using the word intersectional. But thanks to Kimberly Crenshaw, we have a word that allows us to take the multiple ways we identify ourselves and talk about how the intersection of all of these identities affects the way that we confront our lives and how our lives confront us. I truly cannot imagine a conversation about any of these topics. I can't imagine listening to a a podcast, a media story, uh, reading an article about race and class and gender and, and not seeing the word or hearing the word intersectional being utilized. Those conversations, if, uh, if that word was not present, those conversations would feel like they lacked nuance or lacked a type of cultural understanding. Those conversations would read or uh, hear pretty whitewashed and they would feel pretty incomplete. Likewise, I couldn't imagine having a conversation about or reading about a sexual harassment or sexual abuse and not coming across the phrase Me Too that Tarana Burke so famously coined and eventually sparked a cultural movement around. That phrase is so deeply woven into the cultural glossary because of the way that it has transformed the way that we talk about sexual abuse and sexual harassment in all of its many forms. The phrase has maintained a a wonderful amount of traction. Uh, Real talk. It is still going, still going strong and still toppling abusers from their pedestals. Evil, delicious grin, I have to say. Uh... And so along those lines, there is another word of this kind, a word of this ilk that is commonly used when talking about Black women and their treatment in digital spaces. And that word is misogynoir. Now, if you're a Black woman on the internet, you have almost certainly come across that term since it has a direct impact on how media portrayals of Black women impact our daily lives. Uh, Simply put, misogyny, excuse me, misogynoir is misogyny directed towards Black women where race and gender both play roles in bias. So think of it as uh, where racism and sexism meet, right? It's an understanding of anti-Black misogyny. And it was coined by Dr. Moya Bailey in 2010. 
So when Dr. Bailey first coined the term misogynoir, she defined it as the ways anti-Black and misogynistic representation shape broader ideas about Black women, particularly in visual culture and digital spaces. So in feminist spaces, both Black and otherwise, that I frequent, that I like to hang out in, the phrase is used quite often very lovingly. I could not imagine conversations uh, in these forums occurring without seeing the word misogynoir come up, I would say, every paragraph or two or so. It's pretty commonly used when talking about essentially the Black female experience online. And so because Dr. Bailey coined the term in 2010, within a few years, it achieved the highest level of digital awesomeness. It went viral. It's got its own hashtag and its own Wikipedia page. It's left the lips of Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. It's been uttered on CNN and MSNBC. It appears in lots of op-eds and think pieces and research and educational articles and materials and pop cultural articles, blogs. My head is spinning. It shows up very often. It's just a part of the 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 cultural glossary that we use to talk about uh, what it's like to be Black and female on the internet today. I couldn't imagine a landscape, a digital landscape without this term existing. And so today I am thrilled to have Dr. Moya Bailey on the show She's got a new book out called Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. The book is rad. I highly recommend it. Go out and grab yourself either a digital copy or a hard copy because it feels like a, a feminist guidebook on how to engage in digital resistance in effective and meaningful ways, in ways that will engage change and spark conversation and spark perhaps lawmakers, perhaps uh, movements both locally and nationally and how to make these forms of resistance um, really stick and truth be told, inspire the next generation coming up under us. So all of that said, she's going to talk about how the term has taken on a life of its own and what it feels like to see your work out there in the world like that. She's going to talk also about how people think they know Black women, but they have absolutely no idea and what the future holds for misogynoir. I still cannot believe that this cultural icon is on the show. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. But first, you know what time it is. We got to put our money where our mouth is. So if you are new to the show, this is my small business segment. I want to help you, dear listener, diversify your dollars. I want to help you engage in everyday economic protest by choosing where you spend your money and how that money impacts communities. So this is the part of the show where I like to spotlight a Black and Asian-owned business for you to add to your everyday shopping repertoire or your gift buying repertoire as we are coming up on the gift giving season. So I'm going to start with my black owned company. It's called Coral Oral and it's a black owned toothbrush and oral care company. I wanted to feature this company because this is truly a first for me and in that I've never heard of a black owned oral care company until very recently. So Coral Oral is a family business that helps provide jobs to inner city youth and teaches about proper oral health care and entrepreneurship. 
Coral Oral not only sells aesthetically pleasing FDA-approved toothbrushes, they also sell floss picks and charcoal-activated floss picks to keep your mouth sparkling clean. You know the holidays are right around the corner, and heaven forbid you take a little bit of Thanksgiving dinner home in your teeth. That's not a cute look. Keep your smile bright this holiday season and all year round with Coral Oral. And so for my Asian-owned business... Uh, my organizational bone is really getting stoked by this one. This company is called Cadence. On the socials, they are at Keep Your Cadence, C-A-D-E-N-C-E. This company is equal parts awe-inducing and completely effective, and so I am here for all of it. Cadence makes reusable travel capsules that you can fill with your must-have travel or self-care essentials. From creams and serums and moisturizers and toothpaste to jewelry and supplements and teeny tiny hair accessories and more, Cadence capsules allow you to travel with a peace of mind knowing that all of your necessities are neatly contained and not adding plastic into the world. These capsules are leak-proof, watertight, airtight, BPA-free and TSA-compliant, and each capsule holds approximately one to two weeks' worth of skincare staples or two-plus weeks' worth of serum or two to three days' worth of hair care or about 17 tablets, about the size of Advil, if you will. The capsules also have magnets in them, and so not only are they really effectively designed, but they also stick together in this super cute honeycomb shape that makes them really easy to spot in a carry-on or in a backpack. They come in a bunch of different colors, and you can label them yourself for a little bit extra. So definitely look into Cadence and uh, travel in style while not hurting the environment. Staying organized while traveling does not have to be bad for the environment, and you can absolutely do your part. Visit KeepYourCadence.com. I'm going to drop links to both of these companies in show notes, but without further ado, we got to get to today's conversation. I cannot wait to bring it to you guys. Dr. Moya Bailey is an associate professor in the School of Communication at Northwestern University. Her work focuses on marginalized groups' use of digital media to promote social justice, and she's interested in how race, gender, and sexuality are represented in media and medicine. She is the digital alchemist for the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network and the board president of Allied Media Projects, a Detroit-based movement media organization that supports an ever-growing network of activists and organizers. She is the co-author of Hashtag Activism, Networks of Race and Gender Justice, and is the author of Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. Dr. Moya Bailey, welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I am going to remain as professional and non-fangirly as possible, <laughs> but... I have to confess, this this episode's a really big deal. This conversation to me is a really big deal because I'm essentially sitting in the presence of a Black feminist linguist icon. You coined a term that would go on to transform the way that we talked about, thought about, and fought against the treatment of Black women in media. And I feel like your work is really similar to the work of a Kimberly Crenshaw who gave us the word intersectional or a Tarana Burke. Like, I feel like your work has forever changed the way that we talk about gender and digital activism and culture and feminine and feminism and critical race. And I feel like your work has really helped to transform the digital landscape for black women everywhere to which we all say one big thank you. 
Um, so I just had to tell you that up front. I feel like this is a big moment and uh, I'm thrilled to be talking with you. That was all a very meandery way of getting to my first question, which <laughs> is, can you tell my audience a little bit, a little bit more about you and the work that you do? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. It is hard to think of myself in league with the people that you named, uh, but I'm taking that in. I'm accepting it. I'm, I'm going to receive that. Uh, I would say... <laughs> I would say that, yeah, I've been super interested in how Black women are treated in media for a long time. And this stems from experiences that go back to my K through 12 upbringing in a very white suburban town of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and just what people assumed about me because I was a Black girl. Mm -hmm. And how that then affected how they treated me in a bunch of different contexts. And what was interesting is it felt like media representation superseded my actual presence. So the ideas that people had about Black women and Black girls that they had gotten from television mattered more than me actually being present mm -hmm. and around them. So I started to think about why media is so important and also when I looked at the activism of Black women, I saw media as a really important tool that people were using to challenge issues of representation that they were dealing with. So even before I coined misogynoir, it was sort of percolating these questions about how Black women are represented in popular culture and Black women's real interest in popular culture, creating it for themselves as a way to challenge a lot of these negative stereotypes. And as I was writing my dissertation, I really became focused on how these stereotypes proliferate in spaces where people might imagine they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So the dissertation focused on this okay. very, I would say, niche and somewhat boring for some people. <laughs> <laughs> intersection of media and medicine, where I was looking at these medical school yearbooks from the 1910s Ooh. and looking at how future physicians understood themselves in relationship to their patients around issues of race and gender. And what was interesting is that these white, you know, future physicians really talked about Black women a lot as their antithesis. Mm. and created a lot of caricatures and uh, negative representations of Black women as patients. And what I found so fascinating was that, of course, you know, these images existed in a segregated Southern context. But what was interesting was that in the aughts of which when I'm looking at this information, that these caricatures are visible and similar, you know, 100 years later. So how is it that nearly 100 years have passed and Black women are still being represented in this really negative way? Mm -hmm. So that was really the impetus for thinking about misogynoir and really the starting point for a lot of my research. For those of my listeners who are not familiar with the, ter with the term misogynoir or maybe have heard it and aren't quite sure um, how to place it, can you please define what it is and then talk to us about what it's like to see your work in the world going viral, having lots of personal and cultural resonance 
and really forever altering the cultural conversations that we have. Yeah. So I defined misogynoir as the very specific intersection of racist and sexist representations that specifically target Black women. And the word is a portmanteau of misogyny and noir. And noir means Black in French, but noir also has these film and media connotations if we think about film noir, the genre. And so for me, that was really important because so much of where I see misogynoir taking place is in popular culture, media, television, film, and also digital media. And it's been interesting, actually, to find that people experience the word as so resonant for their lives and experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just learned this morning, actually, that Misogynoir was on the latest episode of Queens, uh, starring Eve and Brandy. The ABC show. Absolutely. Yes! Yeah. Oh my yeah. God! <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's really amazing that people find the word helpful and useful, but then it's also really frustrating and disappointing that the word has to be used so much. Mm. So I am just really at this moment where I'm glad it's useful, but my hope is that one day the word will be useless and that will get to a point where misogynoir no longer exists. I was not expecting for that turn. Okay, we'll we'll get to that. I definitely have a question about where you would like to see misogynoir go. We'll definitely go there. Um, But first, you have a new book out. It's called Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. Congratulations. Thank you so much. What made you want to write this book? And were there any specific intentions you set out to fulfill? Yes. So the unsexy answer is that (laughs) as an academic in my field, we have to write books. That's part of the process of getting tenure. And, you know, this is a bit of a departure from the dissertation in that my dissertation was very much focused on misogynoir in a medical context and also in this super specific historical context that I don't know that people would be that interested in. But when Mm. misogynoir started to move as a term in popular spaces, it became clear that I wanted to talk about it more and also intervene in a conversation that was just listing examples of how misogynoir shows up. So that was why it was really important to me for the book to be misogynoir transformed, because it wasn't just going to be stories of the very negative way that Black women have been portrayed, but also really tap into the ways that people were actively challenging those representations through the digital media that they created for themselves. And so that became a real impetus for writing the book and getting the book out there. 
Fantastic. Um, I have to say, misogynoir, the term has been around ever since myself and many of my feminist friends have been doing this work. So I think I'm still a little bit stuck on your previous answer of like, one day I hope that misogynoir is no longer around because I'm just thinking, <laughs> wait, what would my Black feminism be without this term and without this this idea that I think many, many women, Black women specifically, but I think just women in general, um, when they need to figure out why they are receiving treatment but can't exactly figure out why because it's not coming from them but it's coming from this bigger source it's coming from tv it's coming from social media um i don't know i can't imagine a world without the word but (laughs) anywho i i totally can't um but i want to talk specifically about black womanhood because you talk about it very specifically pretty early on in the book and you assert that there's a lot of assumptions about who or what black women are but a lot of them are incorrect because they are just that assumptions Uh, talk to me about why you made this choice why was it important that you clearly define black womanhood for your readers early on as it pertains to this book thank you for that question for me a big part of Trying to understand how misogynoir operates includes thinking about all of the people who experience it and all of the people who are interested in its transformation. And something that I found in my research and just in my own experiences that a lot of people who experience misogynoir don't identify as Black women. Mm -hmm. So one thing that happens is that there are a gender, a sexual, non-binary folks, otherwise gender variant people who are read as Black women and then still experience misogynoir. And sometimes their experience of misogynoir is connected to this misgendering of them. And that became a really important site for my own understanding. And also to think about the very specific way that misogynoir impacts trans women who are often sometimes taken out of people's understanding of who Black women are. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of assumptions about Black women. And most often when people hear that term, I think people default to an understanding of Black women as cis and straight. Mm -hmm. And it was really important to me to look at where I saw this transformation and this energy for challenging misogynoir. And a lot of that came from queer and trans communities who already were on the margins of Black womanhood, already feeling some of the burn in terms of how misogynoir definitely goes to the jugular, I think, for communities that are multiply marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so those communities have a real stake in changing the way that Black women are represented, received, perceived, etc. So I saw the hashtags created, the web shows created, and some of the tumblers curated as really important sites of misogynoir's transformation. And the people leading that were not the cis heterosexual women who one might assume. I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, that's a great segue into my next question, which is, why was it important to talk about transforming misogynoir through trans advocacy? It's a really great chapter in the book. It's my favorite. To me, it really, it's 
to me, I think it gets to the heart of what you're saying. So I wanted to know more about uh, your headspace going into that. Yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things about this book and the way I think about it is, and others have described it this way as well, it's kind of a love letter to this moment in social media Mm. where I think more was possible. And there were connections that people were forming online. There was a lot of possibility that has shifted in this current moment we're in. But at that time, I was able to become internet Twitter friends with Janet Mock. And that- Love! Yeah, that was possible because it was very early in her rise. You know, this is before Pose. This is also before Redefining Realness. You know, so it was, I was getting to know her in an era where- her focus was very different and was also starting to do publicity for redefining realness. And her activism looked different in terms of what she was focused on Mm -hmm. and what inspired her. So I was really taken by the hashtag girls like us and the community I saw it inspire and the network of people who were able to utilize it. And girls like us became this real clarion call for trans women around the world to connect with one another. And that became such a model for me of how misogynoir can be transformed, even when that's not the language that's being used, because the solidarity created online also filtered and seeped into people's real world interactions. And so that chapter talks a lot about how trans advocacy was facilitated by these transformational uses of these digital tools that we take for granted. So really transforming the way people use Twitter, use YouTube to see them as platforms for actual social justice activism. And it was trans women like Janet Mock who I saw doing that sort of first and also very well and Mm. were successful in their deployment of those tools and those strategies. So that became a real point of important theorizing that was happening organically in the world. And I wanted to highlight that and show, you know, you don't have to be in the academy to create Mm. the kind of real change and theoretical contribution to movement that I feel like a lot of this activism and organizing created. I love that the book for some is is a love letter because it does have a nice warm hug feeling to it. <laughs> um, I thought of it as more of a, a, a really informative guidebook. I recommended it to a friend who's looking to step up her digital activism. And I thought, what a great uh, foundational text, but also what a great text to pull ideas from to make effective movements for change, for social justice, for uh, changes in local. What she's trying to do is local changes to like government. I think it's a great book for that as well. So I love that it's hitting people in all kinds of different ways. I definitely felt like a warrior reading most of it, but I could also, I understand why it's um, a love letter and a warm hug to others. So that's so great. I mean, I love that it has those multiple valences for people. That's one of the things that's so exciting about writing books and thinking about it as something that people can take and use as, as they want to. Mm-hmm. So each chapter, I, I feel like I really tried to maybe be able to stand on its own so that 
you know, even if people don't read the whole book, a chapter might be something that sparks an idea for you or gives some insight into a reality that you didn't know about before. 100%. I, with your book, I did something I almost never do was I downloaded it to my phone. So I was able to access it in different places as I was traveling, but also to just go back to certain pages and go, okay, what was she talking about with regards to realness in the trans community? Or what was she talking about here? Like, I definitely, I think it's a book that people are going to continue to come back to more and more. Because I think that it's one of the few books that exist in the world that really help to not only galvanize uh, Black women's participation in digital activism, but also really helps to serve as a nice, um, I guess, informative guide if someone wants to get into that space and is maybe a little bit timid or doesn't quite know which way to go. So thank you for that. Kudos to you. I just had to tell you that. Oh, thank you so much. Definitely. Um who are some of your favorite people doing the work to actively transform misogynoir? Anyone we should keep our eyes on? Any names we should take note of? Yes. So I am in love with the NAP ministry. Uh, yes! Yes. I feel like NAP ministry is doing the Lord's work and L-O-R-D-E's work. Thinking about Audrey Lord. Mm-hmm. I just think that the importance of rest and actually taking time is Mm -hmm. essential. And so much of Black women's lives, I think, have been a narrative that we need to grind ourselves down for capitalism. We need to grind ourselves down for survival. And the NAP ministry, I think, offers a really wonderful counter and says, you know, this isn't what our ancestors would want for us. Mm -hmm. This is also not sustainable. And if we're trying to get to the world we want, we have to think about ways that we're embodying that every day. And part of that is committing to rest, to committing to relaxation, committing to ourselves in a way that society, capitalism would otherwise have us not. So I'm really grateful for the work of the NAP ministry in being there and giving us an alternative to grind culture. 100%. I'll also link uh, to the NAP ministry in show notes. They, I 100% support their ethos. They had a, I want to say an installation in New York right before the pandemic ended that a bunch of my friends went to and said it was super inspiring. And sadly, I don't know why it took the entire world coming to a grinding halt for at least for me to discover them and to have their ethos really make sense and land for me. I would say that's a shame on me and not on the NAP ministry. But to anyone who's listening and who's like, wait, what are they talking about? Taking naps, resting, I'm confused. Uh, I will link to them in show notes. Check out the NAP ministry. They do really, really amazing work in the, I really hate this term, the field of self-care. I think it's kind of an overused phrase, but... um, they are what I, they are doing the Lord's work, the Audra Lord's work and the Lord's work. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Um, so you touched on this a little bit earlier. You coined the term misogynoir. It's gone viral. It has its own hashtag. It's got a permanent place in our cultural lexicon. It's, it's impacted the way that black women exist with and interact online and in media. And I do have a bit of like a woo woo question here. 
What's next for Massage Noir? I mean, it's it's undergone an, it's undergone an amazing transformation already. And where do you hope the term goes from here? I think you've already said it, and it's hurting my heart. But I'm turning it over to you. <laughs> well, I think about Massage Noir as something that is in a long history of words and terms that expand what Black women have already been talking about. So part of the narrative of misogynoir, I think, is just sort of encapsulating something that Black women have been talking about for a long time. So I see relevant references to misogynoir in the words of Sojourner Truth, in the words of the Kambahi River Collective Statement. So in that sense, misogynoir has been talked about even before I coined the term. And then I do think that we can get to a place. I do imagine a world where misogynoir no longer exists, where misogynoir is no longer part of our reality. And that means a lot of things have to shift. (laughs) That means the end of capitalism, the end of racism, sexism, anti-Black racism specifically. And I don't think that will happen in my lifetime, but I do think that part of naming the problem, which is what misogynoir offers, gives us the possibility to imagine a solution, gives us a possibility to imagine what comes next. And my hope is that now that we have the language, we can do a better job of Mm. actually addressing the problem. And again, I don't think I will be here to see that ending, but I do wish it for the next generations that are coming after us. I'm getting in line behind you. I was definitely glass half empty (laughs) earlier about like imagining a world without misogynoir's existence. Now I'm glass half full. I'm following you, Dr. Bailey. You called me in. You called me in and I'm standing behind you. I'm so glad. Hoping for that world as well. I uh, am having a hard time picturing it, but I'm going to follow you and I'm going to stay positive because... I do believe we can get there. I'm having a hard time believing how we will do that, but I believe we can get there. So thank you for that. Oh, you're quite welcome. And again, I don't know that you and I will get there, but I do think that the I do think that those coming behind us have a better shot than we did. You hear that, my Gen Z listeners? It's it's gonna be on you guys. I see you out there. We're we're relying on you and the generations coming up under you. Absolutely. Uh, I want to end this interview. Sadly, it has to end. Uh, I want to end it, though, with a call to action. So for any of my listeners who are interested in making the internet a safer, a less toxic, a more welcoming, more inspiring space for Black women, who are interested in confronting misogynoir in a meaningful way, what advice do you have for them? My advice would be think about the real actual Black women you have in your life and think about what you're doing to support them. So I think everyone has Black women in their lives, whether they're friends, whether they're people who are essential workers in the places that you visit during the day. Black women are everywhere. And I think that if we do the work of transforming our day-to-day interactions with Black women, We can create and get closer to the world that we want, and we can start to transform misogynoir. I mean, it's helpful if you pick up the book. (laughs) 
But also, I think what's more important is that you actually understand this as a process and not just an identity. Mm. You know, I I really resist the language of ally uh, Mm. more Mm -hmm. for the language of accomplice because that implies some action. Mm. And I want to see people really doing the work of being an accomplice to Black women, doing the work of showing up for all of us, uh, no matter what role or position we play, we play in the world. Thank you for that. It's it's funny. I had Christine Platt, aka the Afro minimalist, on uh, last week, and she said something very similar about minimalism: that it's a process. It's definitely a journey as opposed to a destination, but. You can get there with intentional steps every step of the way. And it feels like massage noir and and those who want to participate in it, specifically in a digital space to make the world better for Black women, it sounds like it's a very similar um, way of getting there. Absolutely. The book is called Massage Noir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. I've had the huge pleasure of talking to Dr. Moya Bailey. Congratulations, Moya, again on the book. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here and talk to me today. It was a joy to have you on. We will be back next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks. That is my show today, guys. Do be sure to follow me on the socials. For the show, it is at Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to follow me individually, I am at Renegade of Fun. Also, do be sure, if you have not already, to subscribe, rate, and review so that you never miss an episode. The reviews really help to bolster this show along. It is my little show that could, and it is still going, and any review would help. I'll be back next week with another great conversation from another inspiring woman. Take it easy.